Welcome to Vallejo's Community Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast on the first Sunday of Advent, December 1st, 2019. The Reverend Wendy Kamori Stager is preaching. Her message is Hopeful Joy. The Old Testament scripture this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and the New Testament lesson is Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Know the hymn, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Our entire Advent series is centering on joy, recognizing and remembering the 300th anniversary of the composition of this popular hymn. But I was surprised to learn that it came not from any New Testament text where we get the story of Christmas, it came from Psalm 98. And Isaac Watts, like many hymn writers, took some poetic liberty. Because when I look back at Psalm 98, I don't see this as joy to the world. I don't see that phrase in there. It is joyful praise to God by the world. It is the earth breaking forth in joy, or a command for the earth to break forth in joy, but not necessarily a wish for joy to come to the earth. And yet, at the end of the psalm, there is an affirmation that indeed the floods will be clapping their hands and the hills will be singing together in joy. And my logical brain was like, wait, 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 how did we get from the joy to God, to be joy, to the, to the earth and everything. And then I went, Wendy, you're, you're trying to over-logic this. Remember, it's poetry. And, and, and that's what it is. Psalms are the poetry and the songbook, the hymn book of the ancient faithful Israelite people. And so songs are different when they're printed on the page than they are when you sing them. I mean, if you read the words, baby shark, do, 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 it just doesn't do anything for you. (laughs) But, you know, then you get that earworm and you're going to have it for the rest of the day, right? Baby shark, do, 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 baby shark, do, 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 right? And notice the repetition The repetition that sounds so weird on the page, but in our heads, does just keep going on and on and on. Music gives us that sense of repetition. And so the Psalms bring that to us as well. I love Scott. Where did, oh, Scott scooted out. But, you know, his loving joy was repeated and resounded and repeated and resounded. And it goes over and over and over again. That loving joy is that joy that repeat the sounding joy. That's the line from the hymn. But here's the thing. If joy is repeating and resounding, then why is it so elusive? Why, why do you not have more joy in your life? Why did this book on the book of joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu capture the American imagination and indeed the imagination of people all over the world 
and end up on a bestsellers list. Clearly, if we had all the joy we needed, we wouldn't be buying books about how to have more joy. Well, in the Christian tradition, we have this thing that we call sin. And this is not like, oh, I made a mistake. Sin, from the Greek hamartia, ultimately means missing the mark. So if you picture like an archer who's shooting an arrow, it is trying to go some direction, but the arrow goes off the other way. And Desmond Tutu reminds us that one of those places that we miss the mark when we're aiming for joy, we miss the mark because we changed our focus from joy to guess who? Self. Me. Mine. Gimme. The ego, the self. Does this sound like an American value? Yeah, I think that's true enough, but it's not just true in America. It's true all over the world. We return and we think it's about me. And in a sense, this is such an ancient spiritual and human condition that in an entirely different religious tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Dalai Lama would speak about it differently. He would say, too much self-centered thinking is the source of suffering. One of the people I think who illustrated this well is C.S. Lewis, theologian and the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. In the final book of that series, The Last Battle, which ends up being kind of a parallel for the end of the world, he points out that there are, there are the characters called the dwarves. And the dwarves in the middle of that last battle sided only with themselves. So in this great battle for King Tyrion and the Cowermans, right, they were hurting people on both sides and saying over and over again, the dwarves are for the dwarves. And so what happens to them, I'm setting up this scene, is that the dwarves were eventually thrown into this stable. But Aslan has enchanted the stable and the door so that instead of entering a stable, it would enter into a safer, realer, better version of Narnia. And he throws the dwarves into this stable, and while everybody else can see... There's a whole other world here. They still believed they were in a stable without light, and anyone else who tried to suggest anything else was tricking them. And even Aslan, the god figure with the gifts he was willing to bestow upon them, could not convince them otherwise. Hear this section from the last battle. Aslan, the lion raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they couldn't taste it properly. They thought 
They were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he'd got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, each dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But at last, when they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noises, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. These dwarves had cut themselves off. They were imprisoned in their own worldview, their own individual minds, and then they lived in fear and distrust of anyone else, even another dwarf. Even when they were in a safe place and with good food, they were on a one-track mind. And while we might judge these dwarves for their foolishness, um, I confess it sounds all too familiar. I'll confess I default and tend to focus on what do I want? What do I need? Or maybe what do I think I need that really are wants? And what am I going to do next? But the problem, the sin, is that the more I focus on the me and the I and the self and the ego, the more isolated and lonely and insular I can be. It's even possible to be lonely in a world full of people. God doesn't want us to be lonely. Loneliness is missing the mark as well. After all, when we're born, we're born into a family. And from the very beginning, we're born to be connected to one another, to both love and be loved, to belong and to share. So I brought a, I brought a visual image for us today. I think when we think we are only by ourselves, we're like the blue dot. We're all by ourselves, and what is it that I have to accomplish or do or affect. And when you think that you're just by yourself like that, then you kind of can just push stuff out until you're done, and then you're done. But this image on the right is, I think, more like how love works. That when you give some, you get some. 
And so it's not like love runs out like when you run out of a tank of gas. Love doesn't work like that. So next slide. Okay, remember the, the, remember the very central thing that Jesus says, the greatest commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbors as yourself. So if we get stuck in this linear thinking, then we think, oh my gosh, we have to get people to love God, because unless they don't love God, they won't be able to love their neighbors, and they won't be able to love themselves. Or we flip it around, and you go, oh, well, if you can't do one piece, right, if you can't love yourself, you're never going to be able to love your neighbors. But that's that singular line thinking again. If it's all interconnected, if it's all this circle of love, it's a system. It's not just a singular piece. And so sometimes, perhaps, you might find it hard to feel like you have a lot of love for God. The trick in systems thinking is instead of working harder at loving God, you kind of go, wow, that, that might not be the part I need to work at. Huh, what if I try loving my neighbor over here? And then all of a sudden, God's love sweeps around the back and hits you in the back of the head. And then you turn around and you love God and hear how God has created you and created you as beloved. And then it goes, oh, maybe I can love myself a little bit more. Because it's not about only one way to love, or one area to love, or even one person to love. Next slide. We're all interconnected. That's some of this repeating and resounding thing. I'm loving the systems thinking of our uh, ecological thinkers. When I was in school, we learned about the food chain. So we'd say, here's the sun, it goes to the plant, it gets eaten by the deer, it gets eaten by the lion. But now, right, that's not how we teach ecology anymore. We teach it as a food web where, you know, the deer also provides a home for the tick. And, <laughs> right, the ticks are connected to the microbes, and the microbes are in the soil, and they're breaking down things that end up affecting us all and going back into the water system because we're all interconnected. And so these gifts, these Advent gifts of the wreath of hope and peace and joy and love, they're part of this God-built ecological system. Joy, in heaven and on earth, our very earth itself is showing us how we can be made whole. And it is in both the giving and the receiving. It's in the flowing and in the connecting and in the interconnecting. And when we, unlike those dwarves, can recognize what we are receiving, what we are giving, in love, as you give more, you get more. I'm a child of the church, so we had this old song. It was like the magic penny. Any of you remember this one? 
Love is like a magic penny. Hold it tight and you don't have any. Lend it, spend it, and you have so many. It rolls all over the floor. Love is nothing till you give it away. Give it away. Give it away. Love is nothing till you give it away. You end up having more. So let us give it away and in giving, receiving the love of God. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Community Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Community Presbyterian Church and its ministries, come visit us at 2800 Georgia Street in Vallejo, California. Or visit our website, cpcvallejo.org. You can also email us at cpcvallejo at sbcglobal.net. Have a blessed day.